From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. There's a lot of talk about quality in healthcare these days. We all want it, but exactly what does it mean? What criteria should we be using when searching for a quality provider or a great hospital? We'll get some tips from a quality expert. And its symptoms are all too common among men over 50. Difficulty urinating and an increased urge to go. Signs of an enlarged prostate. We'll hear about the most effective treatments. Also on the program, arthritis in your thumb can keep you from doing the most simplest of tasks. We'll have the latest on advances in care. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We all want quality in our health care, but just what sets quality in health care apart from run-of-the-mill or substandard care? Should we determine quality? Is it based on the hospital size, the experience or reputation of its medical staff, or the success rates of various surgeries? Is it all of that, or is it none of that? Or is it something more? In this era of intense competition for healthcare dollars, what criteria should we use to identify quality healthcare? Here to answer that question and to explain what's meant by quality in healthcare is Dr. Victor Montori. Dr. Montori is an endocrinologist and internal medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. He's studied how to design healthcare systems to best serve patients. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Montori. It's great to have you here. Delighted to be here. Good to see you again, too. It's been a while. Uh, longer than it should be. <laughs> That's true. Let's just first of all say you're an endocrinologist, but you're here not to talk about that at all. Explain to me how you started working with patients in diabetes and mm. got to this point today. Yeah, so I spent uh, quite a bit of my time taking care of patients with uh, diabetes, and they have chronic conditions, and usually it's not just diabetes. But for the last 10 years, I've led a group that has been focused on answering a key question in healthcare, which is what's best for you and your family? And what's interesting about that question is that there are three sources of uncertainty about what's best for you and your family. One is the science behind the options that are available to you. And oftentimes that science is not complete. Uh, sometimes it's corrupted. And how we know what we know is not necessarily uh, optimal. So there's opportunities there. The second way in which we have uncertainty about uh, what's best for you and your family is What's best depends on what you value. And so understanding how uh, people value different aspects of their life and of their health and health outcomes uh, allows us to identify what is the best option for you. But we cannot do that without having the patients participate in discussions with us about these options. That's uh, sometimes called shared decision-making. And the third thing is that, particularly in chronic disease like diabetes, when you give people recommendations about way to go forward, those recommendations have to play out in their daily lives in whatever context that is. And so figuring out how healthcare fits into their lives such that they can implement it in their lives is an important uh, step in this. If they can't implement it, we call them noncompliant. And uh, in, fa- in part, it's because we've poorly designed that uh, treatment to fit to their lives and to have the smallest possible footprint on their lives. We call that minimally disruptive medicine. So that's uh, essentially what I do about with about 80% of my time is to advance evidence-based medicine, shared decision-making, and minimally disruptive disruptive medicine and answer the question what's best for you and your family. So Dr. Montori, um, recently with all the healthcare reforms that have happened, you mentioned value-based healthcare. When I think of that, I'm thinking of providing the best outcome for our patients at the lowest cost. So how do you see 
where Mayo is heading in this and your work is relating to this? Yeah, so there are some, some really nice aspects of that and some really problematic ones. So first, I think it's important that people have access to care that is competent, that it's uh, able to uh, deliver uh, the best possible state-of-the-art science in, in medicine. Um, but that's not enough. It needs to be careful. It needs to make sure that it deploys its technologies and its know-how on the right person, the right time, the first time. And that's what we normally refer to as high-quality and safe, uh, reliable healthcare. So it has to be careful. And then imagine an outer layer of that. It has to be kind. Healthcare has to see each uh, each person for who they are, where they're coming from, what's their biography, and more importantly, what's their situation now, and what are the optimal ways of addressing that situation. That kindness of seeing each person for who they are is an important part of healthcare delivery. Uh, formulas that put uh, outcomes or quality or experience over cost that uh, signify this value sort of idea are, are very useful to focus the mind as to how to improve things. We may want to get more out of the resources we put into healthcare, but we have to be careful because it also drives at things that can be easily measured. And some of the issues in particular related to careful and kind care uh, may be much more complex, and if they cannot be easily measured, may be easy to forget. So high-value care, for me, is careful and kind care, and that's what we need to be driving towards. So, for example, in, in your field, diabetes care, my understanding, it used to be that for diabetes care, um, what was looked at was, are we measuring, for example, hemoglobin A1C? Correct. But in the future, the emphasis is not, are we measuring it, but are we managing it such that we actually decrease the hemoglobin A1C so our actions actually have some particular outcome? Is that how you see it trends um, trending? No, way, way beyond that. I think um, most patients with diabetes, if you ask them uh, how much they care about their hemoglobin A1C, they probably will tell you that they don't feel it. Uh, it doesn't make them particularly sick, uh, particularly if they achieve some degree of uh, control. And the issue is how do we help them live with the fact that they have diabetes, they may have other chronic conditions, often depression, back pain, uh, nerve pain goes along with that, and they may have uh, heart disease as well, etc. They may have a bad knee. You know, there, there, there are a number of things that will be affecting their health care. But they, maybe their daughter who um, married this uh, guy is now um, coming back to live with them because this guy turned out to be an abuser and, uh, and she has these two beautiful granddaughters and now they come to live with you and you're the patient with diabetes and now is your main concern your hemoglobin A1C or the future of your granddaughters, right? And so it becomes complex really quickly. The goal of us is to care for that person in their situation as, uh, as it is, recognizing that while they're busy worrying about the health of, in this case, the patient's daughter or the granddaughters, we need, maybe they're not going to put as much attention on their diabetes. And we shouldn't be, you know, bringing out our index finger and pointing at them and asking them to do more for their health care. They have other goals right now. Our job is to be empathic with that situation and support a very holistic view of their health, uh, not just a target uh, metabolic or laboratory marker. So you're talking more of the multidisciplinary approach that, for example, is done here at Mayo? Um, the, um, it's interesting because there are multiple ways of defining multidisciplinary. When I started, for instance, in research about 10 years ago, multidisciplinary meant different kinds of doctors. And um, I think today we're looking at the fact that to take care of someone in a comprehensive way, not only do you need health professionals on the one hand, but you also need um, the village, the community. Uh, there are community actors that can play a significant role in supporting the care of patients. Um, 
oftentimes we think about the, per, the patient and, and taking care of him or herself. But if you look carefully, it's almost never the case. In fact, when it is the case, it's a sad situation. They're lonely. When, it's, uh, when it is the case, uh, the, what it is usually the case is that there's a family behind or there's a community behind. Maybe it's a community of one or two other people, but that community makes a big difference in the care of those patients, in helping them overcome the health challenge and helping them implement the healthcare tasks. And so the job is, in fact, of multiple people, some of them professionals, but many of them in the community. And the task for health organizations like Mayo is how do we partner better with the community to take care of our patients, particularly those with multiple chronic conditions. I was just going to say, is this specifically for people with chronic conditions, something like diabetes or a high blood pressure that they're trying to monitor? I don't know if cancer would fall into that because that's short-term chronic <laughs> issue. Um, is that the type of healthcare issue that you're talking about, something that's considered to be chronic? It's easier to imagine these problems when we imagine the patient with many chronic conditions. Um, I think it affects many other people as well, but some people... Um, let me put it this way. I don't mean it exactly like that, but some people are lucky in that they're visibly sick. When you're visibly sick, it's somewhat easier to gather up support from your social network to help you overcome your problem. If you, when you have multiple chronic conditions, for instance, when you're a cancer survivor, when you have diabetes or hypertension, these are not diseases that show up necessarily as you interact with people. It's much harder to get the help that you need and want from your community. That's where the work of being a patient and getting that support becomes much more difficult. So, yeah, it's easier to imagine with multiple chronic conditions, but patients surviving cancer, facing transplantation, even uh, people, some people undergoing surgery who then need rehabilitation will need a village to recover. We're talking about quality and health care with Dr. Victor Montori. Dr. Montori is an endocrinologist and specialist in internal medicine at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We all want quality in our health care, but just what sets quality in health care apart from run-of-the-mill or substandard care? Should we determine quality? Is it based on the hospital size, the experience or reputation of its medical staff, or the success rates of various surgeries? Is it all of that, or is it none of that, or is it something more? In this era of intense competition for healthcare dollars, what criteria should we use to identify quality healthcare? Here to answer that question and to explain what's meant by quality in healthcare is Dr. Victor Montori. Dr. Montori is an endocrinologist and internal medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. He's studied how to design healthcare systems to best serve patients. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Montori. It's great to have you here. Delighted to be here. Good to see you again, too. It's been a while. Uh, longer than it should be. <laughs> true. Let's just first of all say you're an endocrinologist, but you're here not to talk about that at all. Explain to me how you started working with patients in diabetes and mm. got to this point today. Yeah, so I spent uh, quite a bit of my time taking care of patients with uh, diabetes, and they have chronic conditions, and usually it's not just diabetes. But for the last 10 years, I've led a group that has been focused on answering a key question in healthcare, which is what's best for you and your family? And what's interesting about that question is that there are three sources of uncertainty about what's best for you and your family. One is the science behind the options that are available to you. And oftentimes that science is not complete. Uh, sometimes it's corrupted. And how we know what we know is not necessarily uh, optimal. So there's opportunities there. The second way in which we have uncertainty about uh, what's best for you and your family is 
what's best depends on what you value. And so understanding how uh, people value different aspects of their life and of their health and health outcomes uh, allows us to identify what is the best option for you. But we cannot do that without having the patients participate in discussions with us about these options. That's uh, sometimes called shared decision-making. And the third thing is that, particularly in chronic disease like diabetes, when you give people recommendations about way to go forward, those recommendations have to play out in their daily lives, in whatever context that is. And so figuring out how healthcare fits into their lives such that they can implement it in their lives is an important uh, step in this. If they can't implement it, we call them non-compliant. And uh, in, far, in part, it's because we've poorly designed that uh, treatment to fit to their lives and to have the smallest possible footprint on their lives. We call that minimally disruptive medicine. So that's uh, essentially what I do about with about 80% of my time is to advance evidence-based medicine, shared decision-making, and minimally disruptive medicine, and answer the question, what's best for you and your family? So, Dr. Montori, um, recently with all the healthcare reforms that have happened, you mentioned value-based healthcare. When I think of that, I'm thinking of providing the best outcome for our patients at the lowest cost. So how do you see where Mayo is heading in this and your work is relating to this. Yeah, so there are some some really nice aspects of that and some really problematic ones. So first, I think it's important that people have access to care that is competent, that it's uh, able to uh, deliver uh, the best possible state-of-the-art science in, in medicine. Um, but that's not enough. It needs to be careful. It needs to make sure that it deploys its technologies and its know-how on the right person, the right time, the first time. And that's what we normally refer to as high quality and safe, uh, reliable healthcare. So it has to be careful. And then imagine an outer layer of that. It has to be kind. Healthcare has to see each, uh, each person for who they are, where they're coming from, what's their biography, and more importantly, what's their situation now, and what are the optimal ways of addressing that situation. That kindness of seeing each person for who they are is an important part of healthcare delivery. Uh, formulas that put uh, outcomes or quality or experience over cost that uh, signify this value sort of idea are, are very useful to focus the mind as to how to improve things. We may want to get more out of the the resources we put into healthcare, but we have to be careful because it also drives at things that can be easily measured. And some of the issues, in particular, related to careful and kind care, uh, may be much more complex. And if they cannot be easily measured, may be easy to forget. So high-value care for me is careful and kind care, and that's what we need to be driving towards. So, for example, in the, in your field, diabetes care, my understanding it used to be that for diabetes care. Um, what was looked at was, are we measuring, for example, hemoglobin A1C? Correct. But in the future, the emphasis is not, are we measuring it, but are we managing it such that we actually decrease the hemoglobin A1C so our actions actually have some particular outcome? Is that how you see it trends-trending? Um, no, way, way beyond that. I think um, most patients with diabetes, if you ask them uh, how much they care about their hemoglobin A1C, they probably will tell you that they don't feel it. Uh, it doesn't make them particularly sick, uh, particularly if they achieve some degree of uh, control. And the issue is how do we help them live with the fact that they have diabetes, they may have other chronic conditions, often depression, back pain, uh, nerve pain goes along with that, and they may have uh, heart disease as well, etc. They may have a bad knee. You know, there, there, there are a number of things that will be affecting their health care. But 
they maybe their daughter who um, married this uh, guy is now um, coming back to live with them because this guy turned out to be an abuser and uh, and she has these two beautiful granddaughters and now they come to live with you and you're the patient with diabetes and now is your main concern your hemoglobin A1C or the future of your granddaughters, right? And so it becomes complex really quickly. The goal of us is to care for that person in their situation as, uh, as it is, recognizing that while they're busy worrying about the health of, in this case, the patient's daughter or the granddaughters, we need, maybe they're not going to put as much attention on their diabetes. And we shouldn't be, you know, bringing out our index finger and pointing at them and asking them to do more for their health care. They have other goals right now. Our job is to be empathic with that situation and support a very holistic view of their health, uh, not just a target uh, metabolic or laboratory marker. So you're talking more of the multidisciplinary approach that, for example, is done here at Mayo? Um, the, um, it's interesting because there are multiple ways of defining multidisciplinary. When I started, for instance, in research about 10 years ago, multidisciplinary meant different kinds of doctors. And um, I think today we're looking at the fact that to take care of someone in a comprehensive way, not only do you need health professionals on the one hand, but you also need um, the village, the community. Uh, there are community actors that can play a significant role in supporting the care of patients. Um, Oftentimes we think about the, per, the patient and, and taking care of him or herself. But if you look carefully, it's almost never the case. In fact, when it is the case, it's a sad situation. They're lonely. When, it's, uh, when it is the case, uh, the, what it is usually the case is that there's a family behind or there's a community behind. Maybe it's a community of one or two other people. But that community makes a big difference in the care of those patients, in helping them overcome the health challenge and helping them implement the healthcare tasks. And so... The job is, in fact, of multiple people, some of them professionals, but many of them in the community. And the task for health organizations like Mayo is how do we partner better with the community to take care of our patients, particularly those with multiple chronic conditions. I was just going to say, is this specifically for people with chronic conditions, something like diabetes or a high blood pressure that they're trying to monitor? I don't know if cancer would fall into that because that's short-term chronic <laughs> issue. Um, is that the type of healthcare issue that you're talking about, something that's considered to be chronic? It's easier to imagine these problems when we imagine the patient with many chronic conditions. Um, I think it affects many other people as well, but some people, um, let me put this this way, I, I don't mean it exactly like that, but some people are lucky in that they're visibly sick. When you're visibly sick, it's somewhat easier to gather up support from your social network to help you overcome your problem. When you have multiple chronic conditions, for instance, when you're a cancer survivor, when you have diabetes or hypertension, these are not diseases that show up necessarily as you interact with people. It's much harder to get the help that you need and want from your community. That's where the work of being a patient and getting that support becomes much more difficult. So, yeah, it's easier to imagine with multiple chronic conditions, but patients surviving cancer, facing transplantation, even uh, people, some people undergoing surgery who they need rehabilitation will need a village to recover. We're talking about quality and health care with Dr. Victor Montori. Dr. Montori is an endocrinologist and specialist in internal medicine at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar and this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. 
We're talking about quality in healthcare and what it means with Dr. Victor Montori. Dr. Montori, what was that you said uh, when we got started about how quality can get in the way of better healthcare? A downside to better quality? That doesn't make sense. Well, it does it when uh, you start looking at the fact that for quality to improve, it needs to be measured, and uh, which then draws attention to what's measurable. And oftentimes, there are dimensions of the experience of care of the patient that actually are not easy to measure. They're, they're probably measurable, but they just require a bigger investment in measurement than what we're ready to do. And as a result, you will have blind spots in the way you um, uh, describe the quality of your care system. And may you may draw attention to things that, because they were easy to measure, were selected first, but they're actually not, not, not important. You were talking briefly, Dr. Kakar, about the uh, A1C measure in diabetes. The reason it was chosen for quality was because it was available. It's in the lab results. It was one of the first things that got mechanized in the electronic medical record. Everybody could report, and people can be held accountable to, 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 to the particular number, which is easy to interpret. But does it mean anything? And that meaning part was... We'll get to it when we get more sophisticated, when we get more resources, but we got stuck. We are, that's the only measure, really, that we use to judge the quality of diabetes care. Um, so that's one, one way in which quality gets in the way. It forces our attention, uh, uh, focuses our attention on things that perhaps are not that relevant. There are other ways uh, in, in, which, uh, in which quality may get in the way, particularly uh, because we have access to the data that is generated within healthcare. What about issues that, in, that affect the quality and outcomes of patients that are outside of what the data the healthcare generates? And in the UK, there's a wonderful example where they've had now uh, years of experience measuring the quality of care in diabetes. And you have multiple measures and they have multiple interventions to improve that quality of care. And what they've noticed is that the measures that they've been tracking do not track with outcomes of those patients in terms of morbidity and mortality. The best determinant of how people will do is where they live. Well, that brings us on to the question of access uh, of health care and, and, and cost of health care. Obviously, in the United States, it's very diverse. Uh, you mentioned the United Kingdom. They essentially have a single-payer system, a government system, whereas in the United States, we don't. How do you see that having an issue in terms of quality with the myriad of different insurance companies? Um, oh, it's, you know, that's a very complicated question. I think that um, if you think of of uh, People living to, um, you know, basically get to their, you know, to achieve their their dreams and uh, and to realize their hopes. Um, the kinds of things that can get in the way is a limited education or poor health. And um, it's our job, I think, as a as a village, as a society, to uh, enable people to have the best possible chance at uh, realizing their hopes and dreams. Which basically means we must invest and ensure universal access to education, and we must invest and ensure universal access to high quality. Uh, care. We also have to invest in the things that to promote health, which of course healthcare is only a small little part, but have to do with high quality uh, access to food, high quality access, you know, security in terms of where you're going to sleep at night and uh, uh, be free from uh, violence and things like that. And so, um, that's our society's obligation, I think. I think we've, we've gone a long way in terms of reducing the number of people that have no, no access to health care in the United States. That's reduced quite significantly in the last few years. And I think that, for instance, for my patient with diabetes, has made a big difference, which is they no longer depend on their job 
uh, or they don't, they're no longer tied to their job to get the care they need for their diabetes. Um, if they want to move jobs, now they are not at risk of having a predisposing condi- uh, pre-existing condition that will, will essentially kick them out of the insurance market. Uh, so that's, those are improvements. We have more ways to go in that direction. But access to care, I think, is a fundamental – if it is not a human right, it's pretty close to being one, particularly if we're committed to making sure people can realize their hopes and dreams. I'd like to bring you back to that point that you talk about the village. I I, I like that concept. I can sort of picture that in my mind because many times in in our surgical practice, we see patients who have the right diagnosis and we know the right treatment, but it's the wrong time for them to have that treatment in their life. They may be going through some issues with depression or anxiety or familial issues. How do you see us moving forward to try and reconcile that so we have the right patient with the right diagnosis at the right time? Well, difficult to give a prescription at the moment, but one thing I will tell you is that surgeons must move from informed consent to shared decision-making. In the informed consent process, you're really asking the, the, you're really having the conversation to, with the patient that says, you need this surgery. Are, uh, are you, I'm going to do this to you. Uh, do you agree that uh, allowing me to do this to you so that we can get further? And the patient just gets a yes or no and a signature and you move on. And the shared decision-making conversation, it, it's important to reestablish that this is the situation. We have the same understanding of the situation. These are the course of action. And then given your situation and your context, is this the right treatment right now for you? And uh, issues of timing will come up, issues of this is a successful process when the patient begins to try the option on. So you will hear, if you're doing this well, the patient will start saying, so if I get my knee replaced on Monday, will I be ready for my daughter's wedding in two months' time? Do you think I'll be able to walk or will I still be wearing a, using a walker or a cane? Uh, when they start imagining themselves going through it and then what the consequences that will have on their daily lives, not just on their health but on their daily lives, you're, you've been successful in engaging the patient in the conversation, and you're more likely than not, you still can make it, but more likely than not to get it right, to get the, this is the right procedure for the right patient at the right time. And that's quality. That's being careful. And recognizing that the patient's context matters a lot is what's being, it, it, it makes you also kind. And I think that's the real vision for high-quality, high-value healthcare. So I, I think we're lucky at Mayo Clinic in terms, I would say most patients regarding their treatment are shared decision makers because I think we have a unique system of healthcare here compared to some other areas. But one thing that I want to talk about is that so you're take, talking about outcomes, but we've not addressed cost. Mm-hmm. So how do we do this at low cost but high quality in terms of outcomes? Well, first I want to say that uh, even at Mayo Clinic where we are so proud of uh, our patient-centeredness, there's enormous room for improvement. And that's because most of us have not been trained in the skills necessary to engage patients in decision-making or, ha- or lack the tools implemented in our daily life to, to support that process. So plenty of work there to do, even in a place like Mayo. Um, but, for instance, in our shared decision-making tools, we bring issues of cost directly to bear on the issue because to not discuss cost is to rob patient opportunity for something they want to talk about. It's like uh, not talking about death with a heart attack survivor, um, which has happened at Mayo Clinic. So one of the first projects we did was to help patients that survived the heart attack decide whether they want to take the medicines that will prevent the next one or prevent death within the next six months. And one of the challenges that we had is that the tool required us to talk about the chances of dying in the next six months with somebody that had recovered from a heart attack. And some of the health professionals that routinely take care of patients with heart attack will not, were not interested in having a conversation that 
confronted the issue of death because they thought that that would negatively impact the recovery of the patient. When we went and talked to the patients, they, there, was a, there was a major relief in their mind or in, 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 in their phase. There was a major relief in their phase in that they were able to um, they were able to finally talk about the one thing they were most worried about, which is, will I die the next time? If people want to find out some more information about what we've been talking about, where would you direct them? Well, um, I think that the work at Mayo Clinic that's been done in this area is, uh, is uh, very well documented, and there's a blog that people can go in to read and also contribute. The uh, best way is to Google uh, Care Unit, K-E-R-U-N-I-T, Mayo Clinic, and they'll get to the work that we've been doing for over a decade. Thanks so much, Dr. Montori, for coming in to talk to us about quality in healthcare. Dr. Montori is an endocrinologist and specialist in internal medicine at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for being here, Dr. Montori. Thank you for having me. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, benign prostatic hyperplasia is the most common prostate problem in men over 50. We'll talk with a urologist about best treatments for BPH. And arthritis in the thumb. It can be painful and severely limit your ability to do the simplest of tasks. We'll hear about advances in treatment. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Is your teen getting enough sleep? I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. The CDC says probably not. Their new study shows teenagers need eight hours a night, but most don't get it. Why? Well, schools start too early, before 8.30 a.m. The CDC wants more kids to get more sleep. And many children getting ready for that first day of school can get pretty anxious about it. Anxiety is normal. Uh, it's a normal part of life, and it's good for us to be anxious. It helps us prepare things for things. It helps us stay out of danger. Mayo Clinic Children's Center psychologist Dr. Stephen Whiteside says to reduce back-to-school anxiety, try these things. Talk to your kids. Take them to visit the school and teachers before the first day and have them practice doing homework. If the anxiety does not go away or is disruptive, talk to your doctor. Heart disease is the focus of a study about kids with mood disorders such as depression. The American Heart Association says those children may be at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. They say a healthy diet and regular exercise are important for heart and brain health. Well, here's news about the flu. Johns Hopkins University researchers are working on a nasal spray flu vaccine that works better than injections for those who really need it, the elderly and babies under two. And in other news, fried chicken, biscuits and gravy and sweet tea, staples of the classic Southern diet. Now, Southern cooking may taste really good, but a study in the journal Circulation shows it may also raise your risk of heart disease. Researchers say to gradually replace some of those foods with healthier options, such as baked chicken instead of fried. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It's one of the most common problems that men have as they age, and it comes with a range of uncomfortable symptoms, including difficulty urinating, increased frequency and the need to urinate, and in some cases, a urinary tract infection. We're talking about enlarged prostate glands, medically known as benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH. It's estimated that about 14 million men in the U.S. have the symptoms of BPH. Just what causes BPH, and more importantly, how is it treated? Here are the answers to those and other questions about BPH. Is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Amy Krambeck. Welcome back to the studio, Dr. Krambeck. 
Thank you for having me. Always good to be here. <laughs> now, the last time that you were here, I said, what else could we talk about? And you said, you know, I spend a lot of time working with enlarged prostate glands. And I thought, well, that's got to be uh, pertaining to at least half of our audience. Yes, it's it's a very common problem. It's about half of my clinical practice is seeing men and treating them for enlarged prostates. Uh, about 50% of men the age of 60 will have symptoms associated with enlarged prostates, but about 90% of men age 85 and older have symptoms of enlarged prostate. So it's very common. And I would suppose that as the population ages and people are living longer, that that's why you have this even more in your practice. Yes, and it really affects people's quality of lives. Um, we, we take for granted that we can urinate when we need to and feel relieved afterwards, but many men suffer with inability to relieve themselves, and it's painful, it's uncomfortable, they can't sleep. Um, they change their daily habits around when they can go to the bathroom and where they can go to the bathroom. So, Dr. Cranbach, you mentioned that it was patients that tend to be older, but what about in the younger generation of men? Can it happen in a 30- or 40-year-old? Very rare Okay. Uh, for it to be present in a late 30s, 40s, 50s, but it does happen. Um, a lot of those patients have family members that have BPH or have had BPH surgery. Uh, generally, it's late 50s, 60s, 70s. Are there other symptoms that are associated with it besides the difficulty in urinating? Some people will experience urinary leakage. Okay. So they, their bladder is so full that they will leak urine, like in an overflow situation. Sometimes they'll leak urine because their bladder is irritable, because it's become so muscular that they, they start to leak urine without their control. Mm-hmm. So urinary leakage is a symptom that most people don't realize is associated with enlarged prostates. Um, some men can form stones in their bladder mm-hmm. because the urine is not being evacuated. It sits, it crystallizes, and they have stones. That can result in blood in the urine for some men. So what is the main way that you diagnose it? Generally, we'll have the uh, men come in with a voiding diary. So they keep track of how often they urinate, how much they urinate, and how much they drink. Uh, we take, do a urine test to look for infection, uh, and then we might do a flow study. So we have them urinate in a fancy toilet, and it measures how fast the urine comes out, and then we do an ultrasound to see what's left in their bladder. So that's the baseline workup. Now, now we, we men are, are very proud, and so we may not want to admit that we have this problem. Do you find that's a problem with a lot of the men to uh, admit that they have this and come in to seek your attention, or do they come at a very advanced stage? I find that there's generally two groups of men. Uh, there's a group of men that is very in tuned with their health, and they notice the symptoms early, and they want to have it corrected immediately. And then there's the other group of men that want to ignore it, and they are the people that say, you know, I've never had a symptom until the day I couldn't urinate. Um, so it's really two two different cohorts of people, two different groups. I would have to imagine some of them are maybe concerned that prostate cancer is the problem. Yes, and and people are evaluated for prostate cancer if they come in with voiding symptoms. So generally, if you have difficulty urinating or you're in retention, we will uh, do a PSA and a rectal exam to evaluate for prostate cancer. But in general, most men who have these symptoms, it's a benign problem. It's not cancerous. It's normal for the prostate gland to grow throughout the course of your lifetime. Now, my understanding with the rectal exam is that sometimes that can artificially raise your PSA level or your prostate-specific antigen. Is that still the case? 
It's still the case. We still get the PSA test before uh, okay. we do the rectal exam. It's important to have the blood test drawn before. Um, in general, we if we see an elevated PSA, we look to see if we did the rectal exam before or not, and we may want mm-hmm. to repeat it again uh, if it was done after the rectal exam. So you said those numbers of people that are affected by this, the older they get, the more likely it is. What what can you do to help people that are diagnosed with BPH? Well, there's, there's varying levels of treatment. So the first level is just... Um, environmental changes. Try to drink less at night so that you need to urinate uh, less in the evening. Avoid bladder irritants. Um, Avoid alcohol. Uh, Decongestants will cause your prostate gland to contract and make it difficult to urinate. Hmm. So that's the first level. First of all, what are bladder irritants? Good question. (laughs) Um, So hot, spicy foods, uh, artificial sweeteners, caffeine, carbonated beverages, is that why you're giving up Diet Coke? Um, that's why. Well, I don't have a prostate, <laughs> but yes, it's a good reason to give it up. <laughs> Very good, yes. <laughs> um, so, yes, basically any soda is an irritant to the bladder. Um, so that's a general first step to try. If those little changes do not help, then you can move on up to medical therapy. So there's several medications available that can be taken on a daily basis to help um relax the prostate, open the channel, make it easier to urinate. If medications don't work, then we move on to surgical interventions and surgery. There's so many different treatment options. Uh, Some options are office-based, minimally invasive, but uh, other options require an overnight stay in the hospital. We've, We've heard a lot in urology about the use of robots. Can you, can you explain that in terms of the prostate uh, treatments? Yes. So uh, most of the prostate treatments are done with an endoscope, so a scope that's placed through the urethra, and um, it's all natural orifice, no cutting, no incisions. For very large prostates, there are robotic prostatectomies, so they don't t- remove the whole prostate gland, but they use the robot to remove the center of the prostate gland. And that's the only procedure where we use the robot for enlarged prostates. So you make these patients bionic then by using the robot. (laughs) The robot makes everything better, doesn't it? (laughs) You can put a laser in the robot, you're even better. Uh, When it comes to um, prostate cancer, you would remove the prostate. I don't even, because I don't understand anatomy, can you remove part of the prostate to make it easier for them? That's exactly right. Okay. So... For prostate cancer, the whole gland is removed, and that can be problematic because you worry about the nerves that sit around the prostate gland. You worry about the sphincter muscle that sits around the prostate gland. If there's not cancer present, we can actually remove just the center of the prostate gland or the adenoma, the abnormal enlargement. And that's usually what we do if it's just BPH, there's no cancer, and, and we're trying to relieve the voiding symptoms. So we only remove part of the prostate gland. It is not a treatment for prostate cancer. I would have to imagine that when patients come to see you and maybe they are concerned that it is prostate cancer, hopefully that they would be a little relieved to find out that there are options. It's not cancerous and there's options to help improve their life. Yes, I I have to say that these patients are the happiest patients 
that I have after they've had treatment. They don't realize how poorly their quality of life was when they came in. Um, and then when you see them three months after surgery, they're very happy. Very good. We've been talking about diagnosing and treating BPH with Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Amy Crambeck. Thanks for being on the program once again, Dr. Crambeck. Thank you. When we come back, when we think of arthritis, we think of shoulder or knee arthritis and not the thumb. But arthritis in the thumb is a lot more common than you'd think. And we'll hear about a new approach to treating it from our guest host. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, setting in for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It can make doing the simplest of tasks, things like opening a jar or turning a doorknob, difficult or impossible. It may cause severe pain, swelling, decreased strength, and range of motion. We're talking about thumb arthritis. It's a common problem that comes with age. Well, just how common is arthritis in the thumb and what treatments are available? Lucky for me... Our co-host today knows the answer. And we're going to put those questions to him. Orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Sanj Kakar, thank you. for. First of all, thanks for filling in for Dr. Shives. It's great to have you here oh, again. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here, Tracy. How common is arthritis in the thumb? So amazingly, it is extremely common. It affects about 8 to 12% of the population and about 50% of women aged over the age of 70 years of age. So if you think about it with our baby boomers being fitter and stronger, there's a significant incidence of thumb arthritis out there. Now, are you saying that you get arthritis just in your thumb, or is it because the thumb is so important? That's what we're highlighting. Can you get arthritis just in your thumbs? Yes, at the at the base of your thumb. So if you feel at the base of your thumb and just put some pressure there, sometimes that's what causes pain, and that's what we're talking about in terms of basilar, so the base of the thumb arthritis. I cannot believe it, and I just have to stop for just a moment to say a public apology to my mother-in-law, who so often will say, I can't do anything with my thumbs anymore. They're so weak and they just hurt. This must be what her situation is. Well, my father has it as well, so uh, it's very common. So is it osteoarthritis? Is that is that what we're talking about? Yeah, so there's two forms of arthritis. There's one arthritis where the cartilage gets injured, and that tends to be osteoarthritis where bone is rubbing on bone and the cartilage wears away. Okay. So if you imagine two china plates, they're smooth, and suddenly one of them becomes roughened like sandpaper, so it's rubbing on the other china plate, and that can cause pain. And the other form of arthritis is called rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory arthritis where you have... Uh, the tissue gets angry and it actually affects the joint and attacks the joint itself. And that is just in the thumbs. You can have you can have this type of arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis tends to be all over the body, okay. whereas osteoarthritis tends to be in particular joints. It's very common, for example, in the knee. Uh, you can have an injury to your knee where you've had, for example, a ACL injury, and that can lead to uh, knee arthritis. Is this pain or is it also weakness is, or all of the above? All of the above. It's pain and stiffness and weakness and swelling. Hmm. And patients, as you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of what they complain of, they also complain of pain, but it's the functional issues, things we take for granted, opening a jar, opening a door, even holding a key. Those are the things that really bring them in to see us. Can you explain, you're saying older than me, but I'm in my mid-40s and I am starting to notice that my thumbs feel weak. And so this is why I got to give my mother-in-law some props because I just thought, well, this is what happens with aging. Your fingers start to feel weaker. Is that what arthritis starts to feel like in the beginning? It can be. Uh, it's usually pain, though. Weakness, and sometimes that can uh, uh, manifest also with numbness and tingling, mm-hmm. maybe something else, for example, carpal tunnel. Gotcha. Oh, I don't want that one either. 
That's a different show, right? That's a different show. <laughs> the next time that you're on. So how is it that you diagnose that it is arthritis in the thumb? The laundry list that you just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, patients are excellent. They will usually give you a history of what we've just talked about. And your examination, the beautiful thing is uh, your fingers are excellent tools. And you can really pinpoint where the patient's pain is coming at the base of the thumb. The next thing we would tend to get would be x-rays, and they really confirm the diagnosis uh, before we go on to talking about different treatments. So you can see that, you said the china plates, you can see that one of them is kind of rough and the other one is not, and that's that's where the pain is coming from. Yeah, so usually there should be be uh, between the bones uh, space. It's not actual space, it's called cartilage. And as the cartilage wears away, that space becomes narrower Mm. such that you get bone rubbing on bone. Is that a bone spur? Does that happen in your thumbs also? Yes, And is that part of this osteoarthritis? Yes, because the bone is rubbing on the bone, and as a result, the bone will react and form these bony spurs. All right, so what can you do to help people? This is such a, you said 50% of women over what age? Uh, Over the age of 70. 70. Yeah. Okay, so what can you do to help them? Well, luckily, there's many things that we can do that are not surgical. So initially, simple things like analgesics will, will help. Splints will also help. And just just imagine pinching between the t- tip of your thumb and your index finger. A pound of force there is magnifold 12-fold at the base of your thumb. So there's a lot of force going through the base of the thumb. Everyone's so doing it right now, Everyone's by the way. pinching. Yep, so simple <laughs> things. For example, splints are helpful. A lot of people, especially now at this time of year, play golf, and they have difficulty gripping their golf club because they're really squeezing, so you can get thicker grips on your golf clubs. You can also get adaptations to your uh, home equipment, for example, making your doorknobs thicker, can openers. You can make your can openers uh, thicker so you don't have to grasp as wide, and you're decreasing the grip uh, strength that goes in the base of the thumb. And so those splints that you said, is that something that you use only at night or is that something you wear all day? So there's two forms of splints. There's one that goes around your wrist and thumb. They work great. And so especially at nighttime, because during the daytime, they can be awkward and a bit of a nuisance to wear. So you can get smaller splints that go just around the base of your thumb that you can wear in the daytime. What's the benefit of having it splinted? Just that you're not using your thumb then at all? Exactly. It gives your thumb a good night's rest to take the abuse for the rest of the day. But apart from splints, there's other things we can do. We can uh, give you um, anti-inflammatory medication. So instead of taking, for example, Advil or Aleve by mouth as it irritates the stomach, you can have it in a topical cream. Or we can also inject the thumb uh, under ultrasound guidance and be very specific in terms of giving you some local anesthesia with some steroid. And that works in the majority of the time. Just like people do for their shoulders or their knees? Absolutely. Oh, interesting. And then what about physical therapy? What can you do to, can you rehab that when it's osteoarthritis is the problem? Yeah, well, there's some exciting uh, um, therapy coming out in terms of strengthening a particular muscle at the base of the thumb. And some preliminary research has shown that that can actually stabilize the thumb joint and decrease your symptoms. Hmm. And so... I have to wonder, as we're going forward into the great 21st century, while well, we're here, but as we move through it, can can those joints, will, they, will there be a point where they'll be able to be replaced if people are feeling pain from arthritis? Yes. So there are many treatment options for thumb arthritis if we're thinking about surgery. The, the classic or the gold standard is to remove the arthritic bone in the thumb. It's called a trapeziectomy, and that uh, has stood the test of time. One of the concerns, however, with that is that it does afford you pain relief, but in somebody who's particularly active, uh, for example, a manual laborer, they'll put so much pressure on the base of the thumb that the longevity of that operation may not be known. And so we are working in terms of understanding how the thumb moves in a better way to perhaps improve our, for example, joint replacements. 
So hip and knee replacements, they have a great track record. Mm. But in the hand, not so, not so much. Uh, when they work, they work great, but there are complications. So we're beginning to understand the thumb kinematics or how the thumb moves in a better way to get a better joint replacement. And when you say you, you replace the thumb, that thumb bone, why can you not replace both sides of that joint? Is that what you're doing? Am, am I just not understanding? No, yeah, there are some uh, joint replacements that re- uh, resurface or replace both sides, but they have a higher complication rate because there's so much load going through there. And you have to remember the bones are actually pretty small. So what, what other new treatments are available? What are things that people can uh, look forward to if they, if they have this problem? So uh, you can do uh, minimally invasive treatments, for example, arthroscopy, uh, which is where you put a, a small camera in the base of the joint and you shave away those bony spurs that you were talking about earlier on. And also we're making our joint replacements better. And that uh, where you'd be shaving off, it sounds terrible when you say it, but I can understand how it's better than replacing the bone. When you're shaving off those bone spurs or smoothing off that side of the china plate, that's something that you can do again and again if need be, or can you only do it once? Uh, you, you can do it multiple times, but I think your first shot is the best, and if that doesn't work, then you're thinking of potentially a different operation. Anything else that you need us to know about... Uh, arthritis in our thumbs. Why do I do that with my thumbs every time I say that? <laughs> no, I, th- I think as uh, you know, I have a personal uh, note here because my father has it. And so for us, it's a, it's a passion to better understand the treatments. We're fortunate here. We have an excellent biomechanics lab uh, with Dr. Kristen Zhao and Ryan Breiner, and they're looking at dynamic uh, motion of the thumb in normal patients as well as regular patients to see if indeed we can understand the kinematics, the forces of the thumb, and hence improve our treatments. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Kekar, for explaining this new treatment for arthritis of the thumb. And thanks for co-hosting the show this week. It's been a pleasure. Again, Dr. Sanj Kakar is an orthopedic surgeon at Mayo Clinic. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Tweet us your health and medicine questions at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman. Our social media editor is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.com. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.